0: This is the third part of our study on Psalm 89, Reconciling Theology with Experience. Reconciling Theology with Experience. As we've stated in our previous two studies, Psalm 89 was written by Ethan the Ezraite to reconcile his theology with his experience. Now, there was a crisis that had occurred, and the crisis involved the covenant made by God with David. In 2 Samuel 7, God had promised David that a descendant would always reign over the people of Israel. However, something has transpired, and it appears as if the covenant has been destroyed. And so, Ethan, the Ezraite, is trying to reconcile. God, you cannot lie. God, you always keep your promises. God, you promised David that there would always be a heir who would reign over his people. And yet, my experience is saying, this isn't the case. The covenant has been destroyed. There is no king to reign over Israel. And how am I to reconcile that? He's really in a crisis and a crisis that so many of us ourselves find ourselves in. uh, When we know what our theology says or what we think it says, versus what our experience is. And uh, in our previous two studies, we've seen a couple of things here. Uh, First of all, uh, when we have a crisis and we're trying to reconcile theology with experience, we have to, number one, praise God. We've got to go back to God. We've got to meditate on God. And then secondly, we need to search his word. You know, perhaps our theology isn't right. Uh, Perhaps we've misunderstood theology. Now, again, the truth of God's word does not change, but sometimes our understanding of God's word can be off. It can be wrong. And so, you know, we have to pray to the whole, pray to God through the Holy Spirit that he would help us to understand what the scripture says, that our theology is correct. Uh, and, and once our theology is correct, then we have to reconcile the fact that, okay, my interpretation of my experience is what has to change because, again, God cannot lie. So let's just recap here. Verses 1 through 18, we had affirmations and attributes. We had praise in 1 and 2. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. We had promise in verse 3 and 4, I have made a covenant. This is God speaking. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations, Selah. And then verses 5 through 18, we saw power, particular God's power. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the Holy Ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counts of the Holy Ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, Who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab, like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Mount Tabor, Mount Harmon, shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day. And by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of course, as we noted here in that first section of affirmation and attributes that when we're trying to reconcile theology with experience, we need to meditate on who God is and what he has done. Now we moved on to the avowal and announcement in verses 19 to 37. And we begin with a prophecy in verses 19 to 29. Once you spoke in a vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I anointed him, with whom my hand will be established, and my arms will also strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the sons of wickedness afflict him. But I will crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness, my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I also shall set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep with him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Now, there in that prophecy is a clear statement, a clear theological uh, truth that God made a covenant with David. The details of that covenant are outlined. And when God makes a covenant, He does not break it, okay? This is an unconditional, eternal covenant. There's no condition God places on this covenant. Uh, This is what God is going to do with David, okay? And we see the, the unique place that David has. He has appointed him as his firstborn, as his unique one. Okay, now we move down to the paraphrase in verse 30 to 35. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. So, the Davidic covenant, completely unconditional. This is what God's going to do. But what happens if any of David's descendants violate God's law? What we would call the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, now that is a conditional covenant. Though it's eternal, it's ongoing, it's conditioned. It's a case of obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings punishment or curses. That's what he's dealing with here. If they forsake my law, Now, I'm not going to destroy the Davidic covenant, but they're going to be punished according to the Mosaic covenant. Then we move down to the promise in verse 36 to 37. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. And again, we have this assurance of the promise. Now, let me add one statement before we move into 38 to 52. We have the Davidic covenant. We have a Mosaic covenant. Davidic covenant, God says to David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. Your descendant will be king over Israel forever. Okay? But the Mosaic covenant also says, which is conditional, says, you do this, I will do that. If you don't do this, then I will do this. Now, In that Mosaic covenant, there is a clear statement that if the people commit certain sins, if the king does certain things, the people and the king will be tossed from the land, okay? Until a time comes when a generation arises that repents and then he restores them. Now, if Israel is put out of the land because of sin under the law, then it stands to reason that while they're outside of the land, there'd be no need for a king. Once they return to the land, because they're repentant and God restores them, and he promises in the in the Mosaic covenant that he will restore them to the land, then it will become necessary to give them a king once again. And so when you dovetail the Mosaic and the Davidic together, uh, yes, God has not broken the Davidic covenant. They currently don't have a king because they currently are still under God's wrath, uh, and they're awaiting that time of return and rep- or repentance and return. Yes, we've seen a, a slight return in, like, beginning nineteen forty eight and so forth, and you know. But again, these people are not yet repentant. They're not accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, so therefore, you know, they're still under that oppression. Uh, Again, the little sliver of land they have today pales in comparison with the land that they're supposed to possess, but one day will. Now, let's move into the final phase of Psalm 89, and that begins in verse 38 to 52, affliction and annulment. We call this affliction and annulment, and we begin with a plaint in verse 38 to 45. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You also turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him to stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and is thrown to the ground you have shortened the days of his youth you have covered him with shame Selah. Now here's where the rubbers meeting the road. Here is uh, Ethan and his experience and how it's str- how he's struggling to reconcile it. The Davidic monarchy that God promised would endure forever has collapsed and the psalmist here is accusing God. You have cast off, you have rejected your anointed one. Okay, this is, again, not saying this is what God actually did, per se, uh, but this is Ethan's uh, experience. This is his perception of what God has done. God, you have been furious with him in your wrath. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. Now, to be clear, when God makes an unconditional, eternal covenant, he cannot renounce it. But that is how Ethan is interpreting what's going on. Uh, The the, uh, Davidic line has been rejected. The structure of God's relationship with David's house has been broken. The crown has been cast to the ground. Uh, You can literally translate that phrase, you have defiled, you have profaned the crown." And, you know, if we go to Jeremiah 13, verse 18 to 19, uh, we see the collapse of the crown uh, as identified with the Babylonian exile. Uh, the destruction of David's house is outlined there. Uh, and basically it begins with a great invasion uh, by the Babylonians. The hedges in verse 40 that have been broken down, literally the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. The strongholds, the forts uh, surrounding the city uh, atop the walls were ruined. Uh, The uh, fortifications uh, were overpowered. The city was plundered. The king is plundered as the kingdom is plundered, verse 41. Uh, And this in turn brings a reproach upon the Davidic house from the surrounding peoples, such as the Edomites, to the east of the Jordan. Now, in this defeat and destruction, It is the right hand, or it is the power. right hand is a symbol of power in Scripture, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, The the defeat and destruction of the power of David's adversaries is exalted rather than David's horn, his strength and his right hand, his power. Uh, And this has happened because the edge of his sword has been turned back and God has not sustained him in battle. And so... We see here the violence. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. Now, again, this is human experience. This is human perception. This is looking at things in life, not through the lens of theology, not through the lens of the scriptures, but through our own emotions. Now, in one sense, yes, God brought this judgment upon Israel, Because why? Because Israel sinned. Because the Davidic line sinned. And so God must keep his word. He promised in the Mosaic covenant that if they forsook his law, if they did not worship him as they ought, if they didn't do X, Y, and Z, he would put them out of the land until a future point in which they would be repentant. Then he would restore them and restore their king. But somehow Ethan has forgotten all about that caveat. All he sees here is that God has made the Davidic line uh, a byword. Uh, the, the the surrounding nations are wagging their tongues, and uh, we, we we've been we've been turned back in the day of battle. God failed us. No, Israel, David's Davidic line has failed God. Now, as a result of this. Uh, Massive defeat by by Babylon. The king's glory, his brightness, ceases. His throne is cast down to the ground. Verse 44, God shortens the days of his youth. Uh, Now, again, as we look ahead at the Babylonian conquest, we see here Zedekiah. He came to the throne at the age of 21 years, and he reigned for 11 years, and then he was taken captive to Babylon, and at that point, the Davidic line of kings ceased. They bound him with bronze fetters. They plucked out his eyes and took him to Babylon. Second Kings 25, verse 7. As the psalmist says here, you have covered him with shame, verse 45. The loftiness of man shall be brought down. The haughtiness of men will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, Isaiah 2.17. See, there's the problem. These Davidic kings did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Instead, they did evil and went after idols, false gods, committed spiritual adultery, so on and so forth. They were filled with pride and haughtiness and God brought them down. Two observations before we go on to verse 46 to 48. History shows us that God... And his unconditional covenant with David and his house has not been broken. Okay, history shows us that God and His unconditional has not broken His unconditional covenant with David and his house. How do we know that? Because when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the scriptures of Matthew, uh, we find what—a genealogy—and in that genealogy. We see David. In fact, David's mentioned several times and it comes down, it manifests all the way down through Zedekiah and so on and so forth till we come to the Messiah, Jesus. While the Davidic covenant has been temporarily on hold because of their breaking of the Mosaic law because they didn't do what God told them to do, God still has kept his word and that is going to be fulfilled, the Davidic covenant is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the descendant of David and has all the rights, legal and genetic, to sit on the throne of David and to reign. So that's the first thought, okay, that uh, history will show that God has not broken his unconditional covenant with David and his house. The second observation is, is that it is Israel, not God, who is guilty of breaking a covenant, okay? And again, it wasn't the Davidic covenant that was broken, it's the Mosaic covenant that they broke. Now, because they broke the Mosaic covenant doesn't mean the Mosaic covenant is annulled or done away with, okay? Because God is the one who enforced the covenant. And so he lays out, the terms. When you break it, this is what happens. But when you repent, I will restore you. and uh, But that covenant continues to stand. Now let's look at the prayer in verse 46 to 48. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself? Forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. How long? How often has that been our very cry, our plea, our prayer? We pray for someone, but they're not converted. But we're told that God answers our prayers. We see when, when someone comes to Christ, but then they fall away. Has God's word somehow failed? Didn't God say that no one can pluck them out of my hand? What could that possibly mean? We ask God to heal someone, and yet they continue to be sick. But didn't God promise that he'd heal all our diseases? There's just some examples of where we have to reconcile theology and experience. Israel, in her destruction and defeat, is experiencing God's rejection. It is as if God has turned away and hidden his face from them. Will it be forever? No, it will not be forever. Will God's wrath burn like fire forever? No. Though at the moment, Jerusalem may be lying in ruins uh, as he's writing this and uh, contemplating the torches of Babylon that burnt the city to the ground. And, of course, the psalmist appeals to his own mortality. Lord, remember my short time here. Uh, you know, and, we, and what we see in this prayer is three things. We see God's wrath. We see our brevity. and We see our mortality. Okay? And, and many times our experiences bring that to bear that uh, life is short, Life is uh, we, we are mortal, and uh, God is a God of wrath. Now, notice his plea in verse 49 to 52. Where are your former loving kindness, O Lord? Where's your, where's your covenant love, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples, which with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Where, where are your covenant mercies? Where's the covenant that you gave to David? Remember who you are. Remember who, what you have done, Lord. And so he appeals. Israel is under the reproach. I'm bearing in my bosom, in my my chest, the reproach of the many peoples. And again, uh, you know, this is humiliation. It appears as though God has covenant, he has broken it with David. Yes, the monarchy is destroyed, but God is true. His covenant love endures. His word stands. He will not lie to David. But at the same time, Israel cannot presume upon God. Sin must be punished, and God will destroy the monarchy in order to resurrect it in a time and to his glory. And that's exactly what has happened when the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, comes into the world from the house of David. He becomes the inheritor of all the covenant promises given to David and his heirs. It is Jesus who by his death lifts the wrath of God from Israel and from all nations. And it is Jesus who will reestablish God's kingdom forever and fulfill every promise of Psalm 89. And that will occur when he returns after the tribulation. Psalm 89, verse 35 to 36, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. Having reconciled his experience with this theology, he closes. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Truly, truly, God will keep his word. And what a great promise that is for us. And so, friends, when we struggle with experience and theology, let's meditate on God, let's search his word, and then let's pray and ask God to help us in reconciling these two things. Father God, glorious, great one, our king, our redeemer, we come to you through Jesus Christ, your son, uh, the anointed one, the uh, one who will sit eternally on the throne of David. Father, we ask and pray that, Lord, uh, you would be praised and glorified by your people. But at the same time, Father, we need your help. We need your guidance. Because so often, Lord, our experience and our theology does not align. And so I pray that you would help us as we meditate on you and as we search your word, as we cry out and plead with you, Lord, that you would open our eyes of our understanding that we may know how to reconcile these two sometimes opposing uh, ideas, that we can reconcile them together. Because ultimately, Lord, we know you cannot lie, that you your word is true. And so if anything is out of whack, it's either our understanding of your theology or it's our perception of our experience. Father, forgive us when we are uh, doubting you. Forgive us, Father, in those times when we question why you're doing what you're doing. And forgive us, Father, for when we've uh, uh, entertained notions or ideas that you somehow are not faithful and will not keep what you've said. Father, I ask and pray that, again, Lord, you would lead us Uh, to you, to your word. Uh, Lead us, Father, by your Holy Spirit to understand uh, uh, our experience, not from our perception, but from yours. And Father, I ask and pray that uh, uh, you would be praised by your people. I pray, Lord, that as we have those moments where by your grace you help us to reconcile our experience with our theology, that, Lord, you might get all the praise and all the glory. And this we say, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen.